0: Thank you Matt, I'm also Matt, got uh, double Matts this morning, uh, yeah so I'm Matt, one of the pastors here, I am the pastor of Irreverent Humor and uh, if you don't know me, you know, you know that now, I'm also the senior pastor here uh, because I'm the oldest pastor here, I know, I know you thought it was Tony, um, it's me, uh, surprise. Um, so, thank you for being here this morning. Today we continue our journey through the book of Ecclesiastes. Moving into the second half of the book, and as we do that, we're going to talk about some hard topics. We're going to talk about death and funerals, and anger, and some of life's toughest questions. What's good for us? Who knows our future? When will our good and our bad days come? Who's really in control? Who's really in charge? Will this broken world and will my broken life ever get straightened out? Who can do that? So with those questions in mind, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we begin. Kind of heavenly Father, I thank you for the grace that you have shown us just to bring us here today to hear your word, sing your praises. Father, I pray that you would use me as sinner, limited, to make much of you, to, to open your word and teach your truth. May you use your word to change your people to conform them to the image of your son, and may you use your word, powerful as it is, to bring more to a saving knowledge and faith in Christ. I pray that you would use me to do that, that you would use your word especially to change people. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. So question as we begin, a couple questions really, to tell the truth. Would you rather go to a funeral or a party? Would you rather go to a funeral home or maybe the Angus barn? Would you rather weep after hearing tragic news or would you rather laugh at a good joke or watch a good comedy? Confession. I struggle going to funeral homes and funerals. I always have. And though I don't fear it, I struggle with it. Maybe you do as well. But let's be honest, those are hard places to be and events to attend. And if we never, if any of us never had to go to another funeral, I don't think we'd complain. But death and sorrow do teach us a lot about life, don't they? How we should live now, and they remind us if we believe in Jesus, if we believe in Jesus, we have something grand to look forward to. Death is not the end. In today's passage, the writer of Ecclesiastes talks about how attending a funeral and embracing sorrow can teach us wisdom for this life and point us to the next. He talks about how to listen to and wait for wisdom and the dangers of folly And finally, we are reminded that only God can straighten out what's crooked in this world and in our hearts and that we need to trust him in the good days and the bad. So the main point for today that I'd like you to to walk away from and, 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 and walk away with and consider is this. We should face the uncertainties and the adversities of life by wisely understanding our own limitations, choosing the way of wisdom, and trusting God Trust in God, who knows and controls our future and will redeem all that's broken. So, we have kind of three main sections of uh, today's message. The first is a prologue where we get kind of two theological reminders and a couple of rhetorical questions that the writer will kind of answer as we go through the rest of the text. That's in verses 10 through 12 of chapter 6. Then, in verse 7, uh, or chapter 7, rather, in verses 1 through 12, we have a set of proverbs very, uh, it, it remind us of the book of Proverbs. And so we have quite a few Proverbs there that actually answer the question of what's good for us? What's good for us? And we kind of have two big recommendations that we'll, we'll look at there. And then finally, there's an epilogue or a conclusion to today's text in verses 13 and 14 of chapter seven where we, we kind of consider, the writer considers what will happen to us. And uh, based on that, how should we live life? How should we look at the good days and the bad days in our future? So first, the prologue, these these couple of verses at the end of chapter six that we begin with. And again, here he has two reminders for us, two theological reminders about who God is and who we are. And if you don't get anything else, get this, you're not God, but he is. So first reminder, only God knows and controls the future. Only God knows and controls the future. Verse 10 begins saying this, whatever has come to be has already been named. Whatever's come to be has already been named. In the scriptures, the the term naming kind of parallels creation. Naming something in creation is to assert or affirm its identity, its value, its existence, its reality, and that it's under the authority of its namer. It's under the authority of its namer. We see this in our own lives, don't we? We name our children. Uh, We name our pets. Uh, Some of us even name our cars, Uh, maybe other things. I've heard of people naming plants. That's... Yeah, I don't get that. Um, So who named everything that's come to be? Who named everything that's come to be? Who knew about it before it happened, before it was created? God did. He knew in advance and expected what has happened, and he knows the future. Everything that has or will occur in your life, the good days and the bad days, the joys and the sorrows. As best as we try to predict and control the future, the scriptures tell us we can't. James 4, 14 through 15 says this, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. What's that sound like? Verse 15 says, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that, if the Lord wills it. Some of you know this better than than others in your own experiences. All of us, though, at one time or another, maybe even in the last couple of days, even in the last couple of days, have received unexpected, heartbreaking news, or perhaps amazingly good news. We've experienced horrible, unplanned suffering, or maybe even surprising blessings or joys. And each of those revelations, I don't think I'm going too far out of bounds to say this, has changed your life and reminded you, you don't really know what tomorrow holds. You don't really know what tomorrow holds and you're not really in control. You didn't expect, the, expect these things. You probably didn't plan for these things, but they changed your life profoundly and irreversibly. And at the very least, these things should teach us and remind us we don't know what tomorrow will bring, but God does. God does. He's not surprised. He's always known about it. Which brings us to the second reminder, second theological reminder. We are limited. We are limited. We are not God. God. Our knowledge and control is limited and subject to the will of God. Verse 10 continues, it is known what man is, meaning he knows us fully, exactly who we are, what we've done, what we will do, everything we think and feel, every desire, the moment of our conception, you can ponder that later, and the day of our death. He knows every desire, every secret sin. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Our limitations, our temptations, And the truth is, we are mortal and finite sinners. But we are also human beings created in the image of God, in the imago Dei. And we are loved by him who made us. He knows who we are, yet he loves us with infinite love, so much that he died for us. Because of his great mercies, the scriptures say, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, he died for us. Verse 10 continues, he, that meaning man or woman, is not able to dispute with one, that is God, stronger than he. We can and we should cry out, lament, and even question God, especially during those times of great, great trial and suffering. He wants to hear from us. But let's also remember he is God, infinite in power, knowledge, and goodness. So let's remember who we really are and who he is. Warren Wiersbe put it this way, the will of God comes from the heart of God and is an expression of the love of God. What God wills for us is best for us. Why? Because he knows far more about us than we do. You and I may not understand how God exercises his freedom, but it isn't necessary for us to know all. Our greatest freedom, our greatest freedom comes when we are lovingly lost in the will of God. The more words, verse 11 says, the more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? I, uh, As I said, I'm the pastor of irreverent humor. I love to make people laugh really too much. Uh, I've been perhaps a bit foolish about that a time or two in my life. I'm also an engineer, uh, or at least I used to be, and I love to explain things in great detail because you deserve it. And... Uh, And doggone it, I love you. And so, as I'm telling stories, and I'm kind of maybe recounting something that's happened to, say, Shauna and I, something we did, I love to include all the details, you know? And, uh, like, what temperature it was that day, or something like that. And sooner or later, as I tell these stories, I say, well, you know, long story short, and Shauna usually rolls her eyes about that time and says, too late. (laughs) But the reality is, much of my talk, much of your talk, it's not just me, and much of the talk from politicians and entertainers and other experts, is vanity. It will vaporize. It will be of no advantage to us in the end. Our words don't have the absolute power to control tomorrow or create new life or defeat death. But God's words and his work do. His words and the word are of the utmost advantage to man. Which brings us to these two rhetorical questions the writer asks. What's good for us And who knows what will happen to us? We see this in verse 12. The first question, for who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow? Who knows what's really best for each of us? We whose days on this earth are short and fleeting. We humans know some of what is good for us but not always what is best for us. Think about it. Have you made mistakes? Do you have regrets? Things you wish you would have done Or done differently, or hadn't done. Choices you wish you would have made, paths you wish you would have taken, words you wish you would have said, or maybe didn't say. I think we all have regrets, a list a mile long. But God doesn't have regrets, and He always knows what is best for us, even if it means allowing us to experience suffering and hurt. The truth of this verse shouldn't lead us to despair, it should lead us to faith and trust. You don't have complete control you don't know the future, you will make mistakes. But God never does, he's always in control. He always knows our future, you can trust him. Even when you think he isn't there, or he isn't listening, or maybe he doesn't care, or maybe even he's powerless during the most tragic events of your life, or he doesn't understand or care about your suffering, I wanna tell you, he is there. He is listening, he is in control, he does care, more deeply and sensitively than you can possibly imagine and he suffered and died to rescue you. He entered into your suffering. You can trust him. A lot of the time we don't know what's good for us or what's best for us, but he always does. Brings us to the second question the writer asks, who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Who knows our future? We certainly don't. No one can predict with 100% accuracy what tomorrow will bring for you, not the weather, no political leader, no financial analyst, no scientist, no doctor, not yourself, nobody can predict with 100% accuracy what's going to happen tomorrow. Did you think we would be dealing with the coronavirus a month ago? We try to predict and control it, and we should plan for the future, but ultimately we don't have that power and foresight. We don't know what tomorrow will bring, but God does. So with these two questions in mind, let's kind of dig into these Proverbs. Again, verses one through 12, he's going to answer this question or deal with this question of what's good for us? What's wise for man? How should we live our lives? And uh, as we do this, as we kind of examine these 12 verses with these, uh, we've got these seven, seven, I should say, seven better than or more good comparison, or if you prefer gooders, uh, seven gooders or mo betters, divided into two scenes, a funeral, a funeral and a fork in the road. So let's deal with these two scenes. Scene one, a funeral. Now, you've got to have a Spurgeon quote and a sermon at IDC, so here's mine. (laughs) Let us then, Spurgeon says, let us then talk about preparing to die. It is the greatest thing we have to do, and we have soon to do it. So let us talk and think something about it. Yeah, let's do. The first lesson, again, from this funeral is to be wise by considering death and the brevity of life. Be wise by considering death and the brevity of life. And in these verses, uh, verses one through four, you've got four, four gooders, four better thans. In verse one, we're told that a good name is better than precious ointment. Also in verse one, we're told that the day of birth, this is a shocking one, is better than the day of death. In verses two and four, we're told that the house of mourning is better than the house of feasting and the house of mirth or, or laughter. And finally, in verse three, we're told that sorrow is better than laughter so let's kind of deal with these one by one the first gooder or the first better is uh, in verse one where we're told a good name is better than precious ointment precious ointment or or perfume is pleasing to the senses hopefully and uh, also helpful many times maybe for you it's an altoid uh, maybe you need one right now um or it's Old Spice, or it's a polo cologne, that's dating me. Or it's Chanel Number no. 5, or Axe Body Spray, or I don't know. Whatever, whatever you use to smell better, uh, that's your precious ointment. But no ointment, let's be honest, joking aside, is more precious than maintaining a good name. By loving God and loving our neighbor. Our precious creations are not more precious to God than a good name. Than faithfulness and integrity. And when can we know we have a good name? Well, how long should we strive for a good name? The scriptures say until our death, until we die. We must persevere in our faithfulness. May our precious, I'm not going to do the Gollum imitation, may our precious not be a ring or any possession or any accomplishment or any position we hold here on earth, but may it be our good name. May we... Be told by Jesus himself one day that we are good and faithful servants. Which brings us to the second better or gooder, the day of death. The day of death is better than the day of birth. What? Uh, This seems backwards and and counterintuitive to us, doesn't it? Seems a bit crazy. The day of death is better than the day of birth. For us, the day of death is filled with sadness as we come come to grips with the end of a life. While the day of birth is filled with joy, right? Because we celebrate the beginning of new life. The Hollis's celebrate that just this week. And and we've been reminded just this week, we've had people lose children, lose parents, lose siblings and friends, or just be told tragic news. So I think we'd all say, just common sense, the day of birth is better than the day of death. But here we read that the day of death is better. Why? What's, What's he getting at? Well, it's not because he's saying that birth and the blessing of new life shouldn't be celebrated and appreciated, nor is he saying that death and funerals are joyous occasions that we should look forward to. Rather, he is saying that the day of death is better because it forces us to consider some of life's most important questions. And questions we probably wouldn't deal with if it weren't for dealing with the day of death. That we need to deal with the reality of our own mortality. We may not like it, but it's good for us. It does help us be wise about this life. Death forces us to evaluate our life and how we're living it. We're forced to look death in the eye and ask ourselves questions like, what am I doing with my life? What will people have to say about me when I die? Is this all there is? Is there a God? Is he in control? Will he save me? David Gibson put it this way. The wise person sits in a funeral home and stares at the coffin and realizes that one day it will be his turn. The wise person asks himself, when it is my turn, what will my life have been worth? What will they be saying about me? The day of death also reminds us, if we are in Christ, that at the moment of our death, our suffering is over and glory is ours. We will no longer have to experience and witness the injustice, the pain, and the tears. The day of a believer's death is the best day of all. It is their entrance to glory. Beginning that day, there are no more tears and no more death. Thomas Boston, who you'll hear more about next week in Tony's sermon, said, on the day of our birth, we are born to die, but on the day of our death, we die to live. We enter a better world with higher perfection, greater purity, deeper rest, better company, higher perfection again, and better employment than the world we entered on the day we were born. Which brings us to a third better or gooder, keeps getting better, sorry, it's not even in my notes. Verses 2 and 4 It is better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting and the house of mirth or laughter or frivolity. I asked my dad this question, and he said, Well, funeral is better because you don't have to bring a gift. <laughs> I get it honest, y'all. I do. Uh, so, what's the house of feasting or mirth? You know, think of wedding reception or a party. Or a comedy club, or a concert, or maybe a Thanksgiving meal. Maybe that's not always the house of mirth for you, you, but hopefully it is. What's the house of mourning? Well, historically, that would be the home of someone who's passed away. Uh, Nowadays, it's a funeral home. So it's essentially what he's saying is it's better to go to a funeral home than a Thanksgiving meal. Or a comedy club. But we avoid death, don't we? Like We even avoid talking about death. We, we've come up with language that sort of softens the blow of death. We say, he or she has passed away, or has gone to a better place, or is not with us anymore, or they've departed, you know, like they got on a train. <laughs> when, I, when I die, y'all can say I flew away. That's my favorite. But in the funeral home, we will be confronted with the reality of death. We can't avoid, de- avoid death at a funeral, We're forced to think about life and what we're doing with ours. Daniel Fredericks put it this way. He said, death is an enemy. It is, but it's also an evangelist. Death is the great mentor for diligence, sobriety, love, generosity, reverence, and humility. Death forces the most profound questions to be asked, but listen to this, mercilessly mocks those who sleep through its lessons. Matthew Henry, an old commentator, said it this way, thinking about going to a funeral versus, say, a wedding. He said this, it will do us more good and make better impressions on us. We may lawfully go to both as there is occasion. Our Savior both feasted at the wedding of his friend in Cana and wept at the grave of his friend in Bethany. And we may possibly glorify God and do good and get good in the house of feasting. But considering how apt we are to be vain and frothy, I like that, proud and secure and indulgent of the flesh, it is better for us to go to the house of warning not to see the pomp of the funeral, but to share in the sorrow of it and to learn good lessons both from the dead who is thence going to his long home and from the mourners who go about the streets. That brings us to the fourth better. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by the sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Laughter here means uh, to behave in a frivolous manner or just have foolish fun. He's not saying that we shouldn't laugh or celebrate or go to parties. Many times in Ecclesiastes, we know, we're told to enjoy these blessings, to eat and drink with joy, to enjoy the good gifts the Lord gives us. Rather, he is saying that sorrow and sadness, which are certainties in our lives, sorrow and sadness, which are certainties in our lives, have lessons to teach our hearts that laughter and frivolity can never teach us. That sorrow can make our hearts glad by giving us a godly perspective and wisdom about life. Zach Eswine, who wrote a great book called Recovering Eden, the gospel according to Ecclesiastes, said this, wisdom does not use sad things to avoid life. Wisdom uses sad things to learn life. The preacher doesn't say that it's better to be sad. He says that it's better to engage sadness and to take to heart what it has to teach us who live. Sorrow and death are unavoidable realities of life. Will you let them teach you? Will you let the reality of your mortality and the sadness and the heartache and the suffering teach you? Teach you why and how you should change your priorities, your attitude, your desires, your decisions, the thing you work for and pray for and hope for? Yes, enjoy life and the blessings God's given you, but let death and sorrow affect your heart. Let it teach you. Scene two, a fork in the road. And we kind of have... A lesson here to be wise by choosing the walkway of wisdom, not the footpath of folly, verses 5 through 12. And there are three ways we do this. There are three ways we choose the walkway or the path of wisdom. The first way is to listen, to listen to wisdom and treasure its value. Verses 5 and 6 say, It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This is also vanity. This is a scathing picture of foolish laughter, of frivolous entertainment. Thorns in a fire burn fast, and they make a lot of noise, but they don't produce heat, and they're not useful for uh, cooking or heating in the long run. So the songs and Laughter of Fools are like a match, or fireworks, or a sparkler, or the Super Bowl halftime show. They are noisy and entertaining, but they are short-lived and soon burnt out. It's vanity. Think back to those catchy pop songs of your youth. You know the ones, the really stupid ones that you love to sing, but you didn't really pay attention to the lyrics. Other than learning how to walk like an Egyptian, did you really learn anything from them? (laughs) Entertaining, yeah. Fun, maybe so. Helpful for life, probably not. The teacher is not saying, let me just make this clear, that comedy or fun entertainment uh, are bad, or fireworks, okay, you can still go to fireworks, And that we should avoid them. This isn't a a call to stop watching comedies. But he is saying that frivolity and shallow entertainment isn't the best source of wisdom. It isn't better for you than wise correction and loving discipline. So don't go to dumb and dumber for wisdom. Rather we should welcome wise correction and constructive criticism. It's surgery to our soul and medicine for our heart. It's not pleasant to receive sometimes but it is good for us. Folks, simple application, get wisdom by receiving correction. Receiving constructive criticism can protect us from sin and folly and point us in the right direction and ultimately can help lead us back to Christ and a life that honors him. That's easy to agree with, but it's hard to do. After the first service, my oldest, my firstborn said, Dad, are you ready for some constructive criticism? I was like, not yet. <laughs> I gotta preach again, wait till after the second service. (laughs) True story. Uh, The second way we walk on the footway uh, or the footpath of wisdom is this. Stick to the patient path and wait wisely. Verses seven through 10. Now we all face temptations toward impatience, don't we? We're impatient for financial gain, sometimes leading to foolish and sinful decisions. We can be impatient in waiting for an outcome quitting or bailing on something or someone too soon. We can be, uh, have impatient anger, frustrated we don't get what we want when we want it. And we can be impatient with the present. We can be impatient with today. Nostalgic for the good old days. So these four impatient temptations, let's kinda of deal with them one by one. I think it'll help us. Verse seven, we, we have this uh, extortion uh, or oppression, which really we could kinda of think of as any kind of financial oppression. Verse 7 says this, surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Oppression here we need to understand is like a a better translation is extortion or bribery. Verse 7 is essentially saying that, that the temptation to prosperity can corrupt the heart of even a wise person. Even wise people are tempted by riches. They might even stoop to some form of financial oppression as greed and impatience take hold in their hearts. And this temptation and practice has been around for years uh, in very wicked ways, and it still flourishes today. Slavery, human trafficking, fraud, bribery, extortion, identity theft, Ponzi schemes, political systems, political decisions. Uh, I think you can think of other examples. You get the idea. So application here is if you hold an influential position of any kind, and you probably do, don't use it for personal advantage or to oppress someone. Doing so erodes your character, making you susceptible to other foolish temptations. And they hurt and enslave your neighbor. It's wicked. Run from it. The second temptation of impatience is not being willing to wait. Verse 8 says this, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Essentially what the verse is saying here is it's unwise and prideful to be impatient and unwilling to wait for an outcome. Now, this is a major challenge for us these days, isn't it? We have been groomed by our culture. We have been groomed by our culture to expect instant information and results. We actually believe we shouldn't have to be patient. I believe that. But the scriptures say it's wise to be patient, to be in it for the long haul, to wait for results. The wise don't throw in the towel. They're willing to be patient, even if the outcome seems doubtful. When adversity strikes, they bear with it. They work hard and they wait, trusting God. Has that been you? Have you ever bailed on something too soon? Does adversity often cause you to quit or want to quit? What about a job? What about a relationship? What about a church? What about reading the Bible? What about praying? What about sharing the gospel with an unbelieving friend or family member? Well, Jesus persevered in his work. And he endured the shame of the cross and the reproach of his own people. He saw it through to the end till he could say, it's finished. May we, his people, persevere and endure as he did, working toward and waiting on the outcome, trusting the Lord with the results. The third temptation to impatience is anger. Be not quick in your spirit, verse nine says, to become angry, for anger lodges, it lives in the heart of fools. Anger resides in the heart of a fool. Fools are patient, or fools aren't patient, I should say. They fly off the handle. When things don't go their way, they explode quickly. But we aren't fools, are we? (laughs) Maybe you aren't. I am. Ever quickly lose your temper? You might be a fool. The preacher has in mind the, the rash anger that erupts when we think that something isn't happening as quickly as it should. We tell ourselves that we have a right to be angry. We shouldn't have to wait. We deserve to get what we want when we want it, and we are justified in our anger. And our demands. But we need to see our anger for what it really is. It's sinful folly. It's spiritual immaturity. And it's an arrogant mistrust of the sovereignty of God. It's not righteous. It's sin. Proverbs 12, 16 puts it this way. Fools show their annoyance at once. But the prudent overlooks an insult. Proverbs 14, 29 says this. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. But he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. He's a fool. So the lesson here, temper your temper, fool. <laughs> Put it away from you, Ephesians 4.31 and Colossians 3.8. I'd recommend a book. I don't have time to go into it. I recommend a book called Uprooting Anger by Bob Jones, who's the father of one of our members, Tim Jones. He used to be a professor at Southeastern. Great book if this is a struggle for you. And chances are it is. The fourth temptation to to, uh, impatience is nostalgia. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Ah, the good old days, right, y'all? When we had no electricity or indoor plumbing or toilet paper, when we used leeches to treat medical ailments, and anesthesia was a good shot of whiskey, and worst of all, chocolate, or best of all, chocolate was really expensive and hard to get to. Those were the days, Truth is, when we experience adversity, when we fall upon hard times, when we experience suffering and hardship, it's easy for us to complain and long for former days when we think things were better and easier and more joyous when we looked and felt better. That's understandable. But in doing so, we need to be careful. We need to be careful because we could be expressing our dissatisfaction with the present and to some degree our lack of hope in the future. The preacher says we shouldn't ask this because it's not from wisdom. It's not wise to try to live in the past and resent the present. Each phase of life has its own unique opportunities and challenges, and we can't face the challenges of today by yearning for former days. Learn from and appreciate the past. Yes, live in the past. That's unwise. Don't be an Uncle Rico. Live in the here and now. Warren Wiersbe, who actually passed away last year, said this, Yesterday is past and cannot be changed, and tomorrow may not come. So make the most of the day. Carpe diem, wrote the Roman poet Horace, seize the day. This doesn't mean we shouldn't learn from the past, prepare for the future, because both are important. But it does mean we must live today in the will of God and not be paralyzed by yesterday or hypnotized by tomorrow. The third way we walk on this footpath of wisdom is to value it. Verses 11 and 12 say this, Wisdom is good with an inheritance. An advantage to to those who see the sun, who are alive. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. So basically the text says, wisdom is beneficial with an inheritance, with money. Now some translations, including the NIV, say like an inheritance. But most would say with an inheritance. That's what we read earlier. An advantage to those who see the sun, again, who are alive. And the truth is, money can, to some extent, protect people from adversity and hardship. In a time of famine, money can buy food. In a time of unemployment, money can shelter people from losing their homes with using their savings. In a medical crisis, money can pay for health care. Similarly, the scriptures say, wisdom can protect people from adversity. But wisdom has an advantage over money. It preserves the life of its possessor, the scripture says. It helps us make wise decisions. Now, to clarify, the teacher is primarily talking about life on this earth, under the sun, saying wisdom helps us survive and thrive in this life. But we need to remember that centuries later, another wise teacher, Jesus, will teach us about the next life and give us eternal life. He revealed the wisdom of the gospel, which gives new eternal life to those that believe. And it is through him, the incarnate, crucified, resurrected Savior, that we can have eternal life and the ultimate protection from death. Money can protect us, wisdom can teach us, but only Christ can save us and give us life. Which brings us to the epilogue or the conclusion. We've considered what's good for us. Well, what about this other question? Who knows what will happen to us? Well, the writer here gives us two kind of final considerations in verses 13 and 14. 14. Two final considerations, two things we should remember as we live this life. Remember first, only God can straighten what's crooked. Verse 13, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? We've considered suffering, death, foolish impatience, anger, and all these things and more remind the preacher and us that this world is crooked. But though you, these adversities and sorrows are within the sovereign oversight of God. He has allowed the crookedness. But we'd all like to see this crookedness get straightened out, wouldn't we? Now, to clarify, what God has made crooked, that that kind of phrasing doesn't mean, doesn't make a moral judgment on God. It's not saying that He creates evil or sin. Rather, the the preacher is stressing God's sovereignty over all events and situations, even the bad ones, even these effects of the fall and our sin, even disease, even adultery, even abuse, even racism. He hates and grieves all of it. But He's also in control. He's also in control, and only he can and will straighten the crookedness of this fallen world and our sinful hearts. So a question for you. If you possess the necessary power and authority, what's one thing in your life that you would change? What crooked thing in your life or this world would you straighten out if you could? I doubt it's one thing. It's probably a long list. And sadly, there are some things we can't change. Not in this life. We can't fix. This doesn't mean we shouldn't try to right wrongs, cure disease, relieve suffering, fight injustice. Ecclesiastes and the rest of the Bible frequently condemn those who inflict suffering or permit oppression. Micah 6.8 tells us to love mercy and do justice and walk humbly with our God. But when those times of adversity and sorrow will come in your life, and they will, you need to know who God is. You need to know he's in control and he will straighten this all out. You need to hear his word deep down in your soul. You need to hear and believe his promises that no matter how bad things get, how painful and sorrowful life gets, he's in control. He's got you. He loves you. And one day soon he will return and set all things right. You need to trust the one. You need to trust the one who created the universe, who sustains it by the power of his word, and who died to give you life glorious eternal life, absent of all suffering and sorrow and death. Soon and very soon the sorrows will come to an end, and there will be glorious joy and rest. Revelation 21.2 says, Jesus will wipe away every tear from your eyes, and death shall be no more, and there shall not be mourning or crying or pain, for the former things will pass away. We can't fix all the brokenness, folks, cure all the disease, and stop all the injustice. There is no cure we can formulate that will correct all the crookedness. But God can, and he will. Maybe not while we live, maybe not how we would do it, but he will. He is able. May we trust him, even and especially in the darkest of hours. Remember, Jesus died in history's darkest hour. Yet he rose again. He lives And if you repent and believe in him, despite whatever adversity or hardship life throws at you, and despite even your death, you will live. You will live in glory with Christ forever. Which brings us to this final thing we should remember. Good days and bad days will come, but God is always sovereign. Enjoy the good and persevere in the bad, trusting and thanking God in both. He closes with this, in the day of prosperity be joyful, And in the day of adversity, consider, that is think about, God has made the one as well as the other so that the man may not find out anything that will be after him. As we said over and over again, we don't know what the future holds and we certainly can't control it. But what we can do is accept prosperity as well as adversity as it comes from the hand of God. We can enjoy the good days and persevere in the bad, trusting he who loves us and holds us. I want to quote, I want to finish with a quote from Zach Eswan again from that book, Recovering Eden. A bit long, so bear with me. I think it's better than I could say it. How do you do this? How do you do this? Recognize the moment and respond accordingly, he says. If something goes well in your day, no matter how small, celebrate over it. No more wondering if you can be happy about good things. No more needing to wait and pray to discover whether it's okay with God, whether you smile or not. In the day of prosperity, the text says, be joyful. A great deal of happiness is passing some of us by because we think when a good thing happens, we're supposed to consider it rather than get on with rejoicing over it. In contrast, in the day of adversity, consider. Let the tough stuff sink in. Don't run from it. Don't use God talk to pretend it doesn't exist. Set your heart and mind on the awful thing. No evil thing can ultimately win. The foulest thing will reveal something true about the nature of life and the nobler purposes we were made for. Take time, lots of time. The time needed to grieve, ask questions, wrestle with it, work it out, and come to terms. Why? Because though this is a mystery, we need to stand on this truth that no matter what happens in our life, God holds on to us and maintains his purposes for us. We cannot make crooked things straight. We cannot fix everything. Both good things and bad things will happen to us. God is within the thing either way. This means something larger than our prosperity and something larger than our adversity has a hold on us. God has a hold on us. Jesus died for us. May we trust and follow him faithfully. Let's pray. Father, as we consider your word this morning, we are reminded of hard truths that, Father, we we too will die soon. And even in these days of of our lives here on earth, we, we deal with suffering and sadness, the death of close friends and family, with even impatient anger and temptations and foolishness. And, Father, as we... As we strive through this life, as we deal with these adversities, Father, I pray that we would run to you, that we would seek wisdom from you and from your people, that we would learn to be patient. And Father, that we would remember that we, we do not hold our own future in our hands, but you do. That you are sovereign, you are in control, and that nothing that good that happens to us, bad that happens to us escapes your sight, your foresight you knew about it. And Father, you were with us and for us, you know, died for us. You have sent your son to die for us. May we remember the gospel. We, may we remember what Jesus has done for us. May we be changed by that. Father, thank you for sending your son to die for us. We ask that you please just give us wisdom for this life and point us to the next. To that day when we see you in glory. And until then, we, we pray that you would help us. Help us deal with the adversity and help us enjoy the prosperity and help us thank you in both and look to you in both in christ's name amen